Tom's a director who's worked in television and feature film in Britain and America. So he really has quite a, an extensive experience of directing in all sorts of different kind of places and setups. But um, if I could start with a couple of little questions about how you first became interested in film and television and thinking that this might be something that you could do as a career. Uh, how I became interested is I can't really remember a time when I wasn't interested in being a director and making films. Um, I can remember sort of being with my action men in the garden, telling stories with a camera, and, and then I saw Star Wars, so that happened, um, and Close Encounters, and that did another thing. So, I mean, I got the bug for that. I, was, I grew up in Helensborough, there was one cinema, and that was the portal to the rest of the world and the universe, and so I got obsessed and um, started making videos. It was the era of the video camera. And um, I'd you know, watch a lot of things, watch a lot of videos, and then with my mates in Helensburg, we'd run around and, and make films. And I was the one who held the camera. So I, yes, I was in charge. What and kind of stories did you want to tell? What kind of I, I wasn't thinking like that. I was simply copying horror movies and making you know, silly adolescent films. And, you know, but I was doing it. I was, what, I was, what I really enjoyed, the, the moment that I really got the spark for it was we got hold of a friend's dad's video camera, and it was the first time I got my hands on one. And we weren't edit; there was no editing at the time. It was all in camera, so you had to kind of think about the shots and how they were going to go together. And I remember the excitement of like putting two images together, and it was funny. The fact that you put them together made a joke, and it and that was a real that blew my mind. That was kind of like magic, and it's that sort of been the the thing ever since. It's about that. It's about the magic when you put things together and it tells the story and so it went from there really and then I did um, I got miscast in a TV show here um, very badly uh, but it meant that I spent 14 weeks on a film crew in Glasgow in that very hot summer of 1984 and it meant that I got to a absolutely confirm I did not want to be an actor uh, and that I was terrible at it but it, no it's good to get that out of the way um, and uh, but I did realize that I absolutely loved filmmaking and I, I, you know, I just spent the whole time watching the director and the DOP and being right at the heart of it and just wanting to be there. And so I made £1,000 from that production and I went, I can remember taking... What was the production? It was called Stucky for STV um, and uh, I was cast as a kind of Glasgow street kid. <laughs> I think they sold it to ITV so they had to have some of my accent, um, non-accent, whatever it is. Anyway, um, but I made a thousand pounds. I remember the day I went to the Abbey National on Soppy Hall Street, took out the full thousand with my mother at, the, at my side, and we went straight across the road to Jessup's and I bought a JVC video camera that was like this big, um, and that was me up and running. I didn't, I really didn't look back. And then I did the Scottish Youth Theatre. I got involved with that, and they did a TV course in Edinburgh, in a couple of summers. So to really get to your point, that's where I got um, the guy who ran that was a TV producer director and he was encouraging and he was in the business. I didn't know anyone in the business, so there was suddenly a point of contact. He suggested where I might, you know, I went to University at Bristol and did the drama degree there, which is sort of a pretty good, if you want to be a director, it's a pretty good thing to do. But it wasn't very practical. I mean, the, the practical side was just me going, I was always making a film. And then I did that and then graduated and kept making films. And, they start, and then they started being, shot on film and they were short films and then they got into cinemas and then you know all of a sudden after eight years of trying I had an overnight success of you know um, I suddenly made eight one film that unlocked it I guess and it got me an agent and I started making TV commercials and 
and then I got offered some TV as a director. So I, I mean, really, I just was always the director. I wasn't, didn't really do any sort of assistant directing or anything like that. Um, I did lots of other things just to make a living that weren't to do with being a director. Did you think about, is this something I'm good at, or was it just, I have to do this? Have to do it. I didn't really stop to think if, I was, if I'd done that, I'd have given up. <laughs> but if, you know, it was, I had to do it, and I think it has to be a compulsion. So, yeah, I mean, you have to be slightly, slightly obsessed because it's, it's a long journey, you have to believe. And you, but I mean, listen, there were, I think there were probably enough moments of encouragement along the way that I took, that was enough for me anyway, it was enough for my ego to go, no, I can do this. Um, so, you know, I look back now, I'm horrified anyone let me direct a TV show at that point. I was like, what were you thinking? But, you know, I did it and got away with it. And there's, this, I guess at that point, I mean, a lot of what I do is about being, you have to sort of be confident and communicate People need to be confident in you and buy in, you know, and sort of think, no, he knows what he's doing. He's, and, and you have to sort of try and project that. How much would you say the importance of formal training versus he's got to do it? Don't know. I mean, part of me, you know, there was a point probably about the time things suddenly started to kind of come together for me um, where I was thinking, like, oh, I'd like to go and do a proper film course because the degree I did was sort of general drama. And I did the odd technical film course, but I learned by doing it. You know, I really, really learned on the job, but that's just me. I think there's lots. Uh, actually, the thing I got from doing little, the little bit of kind of training courses, I did very short courses in London. I ended up meeting people who I now work with, basically. I met people. It's about finding that community. You find out with lots of filmmakers who, you know, they went to a film school, and one of the things they got from the film school really was that you are a group. You're not, uh, yes, you're slightly in competition with each other, but really, you're going to be going through the business together. So you should all help each other, you know, because you're going to see a lot of each other as you go through it and you've got to support each other. And I, I didn't have that particularly. So I, that would have been good to have. So do you think there are certain personal attributes that are going to help you on the road to becoming a director? Thick skinned. <laughs> um, Self-belief. <laughs> um, diplomacy might be good, but then there are plenty of, I mean, I'm, I would say more diplomatic. There are plenty of directors who are legendary and brilliant who go completely the other way and they have a fight with everybody and they make a, you know, a terrible, toxic atmosphere on set and everyone's scared of them, but maybe they get left alone. You know, I don't know. I mean, it works. Everyone's different. The beauty of it is there is no right or wrong way. There's, you know, I think in, in, in all the choices I make, there are only more or less interesting choices. You know, there's no, it's not like that's correct and that's just completely wrong. It's all a sliding scale. So you just have to have an opinion and know why you're making the film. <laughs> no. um, was there a sort of key break where you suddenly went from making, let's say, short films, student type films to proper paying gigs? Well, it was a pretty hard line. You know, I, I made short films, which got big, sort of bigger and bigger budgets and slightly more official, but I wasn't getting paid to make them. And then suddenly you're directing a commercial and getting paid that sort of money, which is a big step, because they pay those commercials well. Um, and, uh, and then suddenly directing Cold Feet on ITV and being given two blocks of that to direct. And you're like, right, this is, this is it. <laughs> so you, but like I say, I, it doesn't feel that different. The, the, the instincts from when I was a kid, it's still that game you're playing. It's still that thing. You just have many more people to worry about and you might have actors suddenly being a bit more demanding than your friends were. Actually, they were quite demanding. Um, but they, um, you know, you're still having to like take, you've got to take people with you, so you've just got to do that in your way. How do you, how do you take a production? 
how do you take very high profile actors? You know, how do you get them to do what you need them to do? You know, there are lots of different ways of going about that. Could have find your way to do that. And you just learn it. I mean, and so I've never really thought on, as I've gone up and down different levels of production, it's, it's, you can't really think about, oh, this is a big Hollywood movie. I have to be totally, do it completely differently to how I do everything else. You just do what you, you know, do what you do and try not to think about what the stakes are because that way lies madness. I just going to ask, when you talk about commercials and TV and film, what, I know you're saying just to add you a bit, but what would you say was your personal gear change between doing a commercial to a TV to a feature? Is there any gear changes that you do when you're looking at the project? It, I mean, they're, slightly, they're obviously different disciplines. I mean, when I'm doing a, if I'm doing a TV commercial, I'm not as invested personally, you know? That's, I mean, it's a job, and it's about understanding what the client needs and what the, you know, that's very diplomatic. If I'm doing episodic TV, then there's a slightly less, you're, again, you're invested in a different way. It's, it's closer to what I love doing. It's much closer to what I love doing because you're doing more performance and you're probably all of that. Um, but still, it's someone else's show. You didn't set it up. You didn't, you didn't cast the main cast. You haven't set the style of the show. So it's kind of like coming in and being a session musician on someone else's record. You know, you do your bit. You play it your way. They've hired you for that. So you do that and then you walk away, you know. Um, but you, it's, it's fun. It's like a workout in the gym, you know. It's sort of like for directing. It's like, I'm going to try all of this. Great. Uh, then when you're doing a film, it's, it's different because you have ownership of that and you really have to have a vision. For, it's a long journey and you really, you really get deep into that. And it's, so that's, you know, that's the thing. Sensing one of the attributes you might need to have is adaptability to your uh, circumstances. Uh, yeah, or not. I don't know. I mean, like I say, there is no right or wrong in this. It's just for Stanley me. Kubrick. For, yeah, right. You know, I mean, there's plenty of, you know, or stand your ground and have, have the fight, you know. Um, but it just depends what you're, how you want to work. It's up to you to get your results the way you want to get it. It's, as long as you're serving your vision. When you were in the sort of earlier stages of your career, did you ever think about giving up? Did you ever think this is... Never, that break's never going to come, I'm never going to... I don't think I ever got to that point. I don't remember a time. It's at the back of your mind somewhere, maybe, but I also couldn't imagine not. I just thought, no, I'm going to do this. How old were you when you got your break? I would have been 26, 27, somewhere like that. Maybe behind that. <laughs> but, you know, but it happens in different ways for everybody. I mean, I know every director I know is different. Bradley Scott was 40 when he made Alien. There you go. You know, uh, Stephen Frears was 44 when he made My Beautiful Laundrette. You know, I mean, it's, it happens to everybody in a different way. It's, it's really, you know, why are you doing it? Why, you, you know, it's about you, really. It's, you know, if it's, um, if you're doing it for the right reasons and it's what, if you have to do it, you're just going to have to do it. You know, you keep going. And always be trying to make something. You have to produce the work. If, if, you know, that's the thing. You just never, you tire, you cannot stop. And we have the technology these days with modest means to be able to make. You, you work with the materials you have to hand. Um, and that's all you can do. No, directing, no one's ever gonna like, it doesn't, they don't, you don't sort of, you know, hide. They, you know, they have to, you have to make something that makes people stop on some level. Even though it's a, sh a short film, it doesn't have to be a big thing. You just have to do something that's striking, that, that's you, that, that comes from you probably, that says, that's what I do. And people can see it from all the other films you know, you, you've got to, I think in the early days, you just have to be very true to yourself in the work that you do, so you can share that so people know what they're hiring. Because otherwise they're like, I don't know, it looks like you made it quite, quite a good generic film, but I've got lots of people doing that. Why should I pick you? So that's the thing, to find what, what your passion is. Is there a film or a commercial or a TV episode that you would say is that 
to the place what your side of it is. It's a one episode where you went, but it's coming together now. I can see where I'm, where I'm going. I haven't made it yet, no. I mean, I just... <laughs> I, I, no, we'll, we'll look at some clips in a minute and we can talk about the different styles and modes and what I was doing, but... I was going really. to suggest, actually, we have a look at um, Dr. Foster. Okay. This is the opening sequence of the very first episode of a brand new series. Of so the BBC One show, yeah, Dr. Foster. It's quite a long clip, but you kind of have to get all the way through it to get to the point of why it was shot the way it was shot. So, should we give it a go? Should we kill the lights? Yeah. So, the task here is setting up Introducing a BBC One audience, nine o'clock, we've all been watching Bake Off. So here's the new show, it's not a cop show, it's not a, you know, it's not, it doesn't fit within a traditional TV you know, genre that's easy to describe. It's written and set in a deliberately normal, some would say bland world with ordinary characters. So you've got to somehow get an audience to hook into that because <laughs> it, it, it was deliberately commissioned and Mike wrote it deliberately as something that was trying to expand what you could have as drama on BBC One in the modern era what could, what kind of shows would an audience go with so with that sort of as a directing challenge I had to find a way of hooking an audience in now obviously there's a lot of movement in that section it's very deliberate that the whole thing it's just a lot of bustle it doesn't matter if you don't really hear what people are saying to each other it's just a lot of busyness a lot of people coming in and out you're you're so that was deliberate, that it's just a very busy first few minutes. You're sort of laying in a few things, you're sort of throwing in there, there's the scarf in the kitchen, the son and the husband, and trying to show that there's a sort of normal marriage at the beginning. And the sequence finally builds, goes on and on, it's pretty long, but it's only in the first few minutes of the show, and you're sort of gambling at that point that an audience are going to give you a few minutes to see what this is all about before they turn off. And, and obviously, at the very end of that sequence, you suddenly take all that sound and bustle away and you have this very still moment and you hone right in on this tiny detail of this hair on a scarf. And that's what the show is going to be about. It's going to be about the, this seemingly ordinary world with this underpinning of something's up, something's going on. So that was the gamble we made. We go, from that point, you go straight into an opening title sequence, which also tries to thematically hit kind of what the show is going to be about. The other thing that we did, and normally I'm against this and I think it's a bit pretentious, but I did it as a deliberate choice, which is that you can't really tell on that screen, but we shot it uh, two, three, five to one ratio. So it's a kind of, it's a, it's a different framing. So you have a little bit of, you notice it a bit more on TV. And that was, again, I, you know, I'm tasked with a very ordinary world. So how do I frame it just subtly differently to let people know that this, this world is going to go to a very, a much more interesting place than you think right now, <laughs> hopefully. So we made the decision to sort of frame the whole thing in a slightly unusual, it's not unheard of on TV, and the BBC are actually very willing to let you do that, to their credit. ITV wouldn't let me do that, for example. Um, but the BBC were up for it, and, and I could justify it for purely creative reasons. It wasn't sort of, I want to make it, I want to be a movie director, and I'm making television, but I'm gonna frame it that way anyway. Um, and then the other thing is, you know, obviously you've got the challenge in there of trying to introduce a character and set it up uh, and do all that movement, but everything's shot on location. So you've got tricky things like that doctor's studio, the surgery she's walking through, really tricky to get there. You know, it's a physical place, maybe not the greatest choice of location, but you do it for other reasons. So trying to find ways of staging the actors and keeping it moving and keeping the camera moving and where that flags a bit, keeping the words going and then it's all, you know, keeping the, the music under it. So that was, that's an example of that. 
I guess, setting up a show. Was it a deliberate choice to try and differentiate it, let's say, from soap opera, for example, to mm. like, make sure that this is... Yeah, absolutely. The, the subject matter is, you know, you know, cheating husband. It's like, really? Um, and it was a big experiment. It was a, how do we make that visually interesting and, and di feel different and not just so it obviously has, you know, you could get a storyline like, like that in a soap opera. Um, but making it, it felt really risky. We didn't know. We felt like we were, you know, none of us had any idea if it was going to work and whether an audience would go with it because it goes on a fairly wild ride. She makes all sorts of crazy choices. If you've seen it, it goes to pretty crazy places. It was also finding a way of sort of experiencing her work, the world through her eyes. So in that first episode, a lot of it is very much her point of view of things. And so that was what we're beginning with that hair, you know, and the lipstick. It's just these little subjective moments that just take you into her, her level. She's going from like looking at the world and thinking everything's great to then becoming suspicious of everything. And so you had to start building that in through the episode and you get getting into these macro shots and these details and just everything feeling a bit off kilter and then having a slightly funny framing and being a bit too close to her and not being conventionally on a, just an attractive shot here, you're in here suddenly or up here and working with all that. But as I say, making it, you, that was what was interesting and exciting in terms of trying to tell that story. There was a lot of um, camera movement within, within that sequence. And yeah. was that something that was your decision or, yeah? Yeah, very deliberate. It's a very deliberate, I mean, you plan it. You just, you've got, you know you've got those four minutes before the opening credits, if you can get people to the opening. And it was funny, you know, people tweeting along. I wasn't reading the tweets, but, you know, at the end, people were saying that. And, and a lot of that first episode was people going, I'll give it five minutes. I'll give it another five minutes. I'll give it another. And I, fuck me, I got to the end. <laughs> you know, I've got when's next week. You know, I've got to see what happens next. Which was sort of the game because not much is happening and it's all beneath the surface. But there's this kind of just enough to keep you surface. But there's this kind of just enough to keep you. Hopefully, for those who, for those people who it worked for, that's what you're trying to do. Just teasing them and and trying to keep them coming, coming along on the sort of journey. Uh, I was just going to ask you. Say you're directing another TV series. You know, it's got like a directing workout. Yeah. But, but in the case of Dr. Foster, will you sort of come up with a guidebook for that style? Yeah, that's, that's the, I mean, that's what I like to do. If it, you know, it's either setting up shows or directing one-off films. That's the kind of the full job. Because I came into that where there was a, we didn't know how, we didn't know what happened beyond episode two when I signed on. So we, I knew that Mike thought he was writing Medea and it was going to be a revenge strategy. But how he was going to land it, I mean, he, in the first, you know, the first episodes, he's writing a lot of checks, as we say. You know, and can he cash them? That's what we didn't know. So how is this all going to land? So, he, so that's an ongoing discussion and a process. And we had Saran was involved, but we hadn't cast anyone else. So that's, yeah, you come in, it's, there's two scripts, their first draft, and everyone's like, what's this going to be like? <laughs> you know, how are we going to do it? And that's the best, that's the job. That's the full experience, and then you invest very heavily in that, and you feel very, um, you feel great ownership of that. Quite a strong element of trust in the writer as well. There, that yeah, he's, he's going to be able to. Yeah, you that. do, but he and it, with someone like Mike, who's been a very successful playwright, and you know he's earned that place. And you have to, you have to back that. That's what we're backing. I need to know what story he wants to tell, and then he needs to trust me that I can help him tell that story and take it to a new place and how to do that because he's not got a lot you know he hasn't got lots of experience of filmmaking so he's from the theater primarily so yeah so did that cause any moments of tension well there's, there's always moments of tension but good creative tension not not animosity because i totally respected him and he, i think he understood very quickly that i was there for him and i'm trying to get from him what what he thinks he's writing and then what's on the page and then what 
the audience is going to actually understand from that because that's the connection. You th I mean, it happens all the time. You think you're making, you think you're telling your story, and then you show it to an. There's nothing like showing it to an audience. And you, even if you just sit in a crowd, you should always screen it to an audience. Everything, because there's a point where you think you've done it, you think you've got it, and you sit in a room. And even okay, with a comedy, it's instant feedback or not. Well, it's instant feedback, but maybe not the kind you like, like silence that you know you haven't made a comedy actually. Um, uh, and if you've made a drama, you can you can sense in the room when the audience is paying attention and when people are checking their phones and you can see them. But that's the thing, I mean, on every production ever, you, you sit there, you think you've kind of got it to a good place. Producers maybe all agree, you know, you've all had your notes and got it to a place. You show it to a room full of people. Right, we better go back and do some more editing. Because <laughs> uh, it's just, a, it's human beings, we're all communicating something. When we're in a group and you sit there, you're all communicating. It's, you know, it's uh, uncanny. Um, but it, you feel it and you, you stuck, I mean, it's horrible. <laughs> I think it's a Question from the back. Yeah. Hello. Um, how you were talking earlier about being true to yourself and putting yourself in the world. When it's a drama series that's been written by somebody else in the network, how do you balance satisfying what they might ask of you or what they might restrict, like you were saying, ITV might not let you do the screen in that way, but you basically would. How, how do you allow yourself that creative input while being mindful of what everybody else might be? Yeah, I think you have to pick your battles and you have to know what's really important to you. Uh, you know, if I, if I pitch on, if I come in on a show and have an interview and I have a very specific take on it, and then I get into the job and they start saying they don't want to do that, that's a moment where you need to talk about what maybe you should get a different director. But if, you're just, if you've just got some things you want to try and some things you want to push on and some things you understand, I get it. If I'm making it for an ITV audience, there are certain expectations and I might want to challenge them to some degree, but unless I came in and said, I want to terrify that audience and I want to make them all turn off and I want to satisfy one million people who stay, you know, stay and watch. Um, if I sold that to the network <laughs> as my approach, and well, that's why I'm here, so I'll fight for that. You just have to, it's just a constant thing, but you do have to understand there is give and take. It's all about compromising, but knowing which ones to compromise on and which ones to fight for. If you don't believe in a piece of casting that they're trying to make you you know, if someone's trying to impose an actor, a major actor in a, in a role, and you do not, you cannot see it, then you have to say no. You have to resist that, because that, you'll never get beyond that. But if it's just a case of, you know what, everyone really likes this person, let me go and look at their work, and maybe meet them and think about it, and then if you, and then you can see a way of working, then okay, that you can, it, it, it's all about give and take and compromising, and someone needs to have a vision for what you're doing, hopefully that's the director, but if it's the writer with a vision, you as a director needs to get on board with that vision and then carry that forwards. But there has to be one vision. There can't be two visions. Two visions end up with, you, you get a mess. Um, hi there. Uh, I studied screenwriting all last year in Vancouver. Oh, wow. And uh, I kind of came up with the philosophy that a writer uh, is the voice and the director is the eyes. Uh, the writer tells the story, the director shows the story. Mm -hmm. Like, how you said how you directed that opening scene, how the, the sort of fluidity of it, and I kind of liked how there was those pockets where she would go into a scene, there'd be a pause, like water filling up a hole, and then as yeah. the hole fills up, she then goes on to the next one. Yeah. Um, when you read the script, though, for the opening episode, was there that sort of quick fluidity in it? Like, was it written like quick shot harder, you know, her coming downstairs, quick shot harder? Or did you, as a director, elevate that to, let's all have this fluidity style kind of filmmaking to kind of elevate it? Like, did you add that to it, or was that as written and you kind of elevated it? Uh, I, I can't.
can't quite remember. I don't think Mike was technical in terms of what the type of shots or anything, but he may have suggested that. He would have written it, I imagine, with that intent, with something like that going on. But I definitely then took that and pushed it and went places with it. It's funny, sometimes it's not what's on the page, it's just the things that come to you when you read it. You read it when you're working on a script like that, you just keep going back to it. Like you read it once to see what it is, another time to really get a handle on it, third time for ideas. And ideas just come to you and you make those notes and you carry them through pre-production and a style develops and you sort of break the script down into sequences as filmed sequences, which is different to how it reads. You have to get good at realizing what reads well doesn't, you know, he, he will write things that you go, that's great for the reader and for understanding your intention, but I can't film that because it's not a thing you can film. It's a feeling. So I now have to find a way of capturing the feeling yeah, so you're, you're a kind of translator. Yes. Well, you're moving from a printed a plan and a brilliant, maybe a brilliant story and brilliant characters on the page. Now you've got to get, and that, that can all just stay on the page <laughs> because you've got to find a way. And some of it's easier to do and some of it isn't. Mike's a brilliant writer, so it's, e it's easier. Um, but you've got to turn it into a film. So you shoot it and then you edit it and you start all over again when you edit it and you retell the story through editing and music and all these things that you discover at that point. So you sort of, you do it, I mean, it's been said before, you, you make it three times, you know? I was going to ask what kind of writing excites you as a director? I'm sorry? What kind of writing excites you as a director? It's something that surprises me, where I don't know where it's going. This, you know, I mean, we all watch so much drama, and we all, if we're into movies and films, we all watch so much, that I'm gonna, it, I certainly need some, if I'm gonna make something, I need to, Either it needs to speak to me directly on a very personal level, and I go from my, you know, I'm married, so this is about marriage. <laughs> you know, that's an inter I can get in, I can follow that. Um, I can see how that's an interesting world. If suspicion in a marriage, that's, a, that's something you can, that you can be drawn into, and that you can see how that madness can take over. So that's interesting to explore. Um, a story that's just unpredictable, and the beauty with this one, for example, is no one knew where it was going, <laughs> you know. Mike had an idea of the final destination, but how we were going to get there and what that was, it's a great, you know, it's exciting. I'm constantly being surprised by things. The, the next thing I'm going to talk about is Victoria, and I had, when they first brought me Victoria, I was, I was like, the producer said, I've got a secret project, top secret, you know, sign this document, I'll tell you about it. I was like, okay, great, great. And he went, Queen Victoria. And I was like, oh, God, really? <laughs> uh, you know, um, yeah, totally. <laughs> He's like, do we really need another, you know, God, um, and, um, and then I read the first script, which is what was there, and this young, amazing woman, and a crazy spirit, and I, was, I got to the end of that and immediately just went, is this, did this happen? Did we, how much did this happen? I had no idea about any of it. And I just thought, here's this fantastic, strong woman at the heart of this drama. That's interesting, and then, okay, how do we do, Victor do, do pre-Victorian London? How do we do this world? And, and then it got really interesting, and I thought, oh dear, I'm going to have to make this. Um, do you want to? Shall we have a look? So what we? Uh, this is the coronation, coronation sequence. Sorry. Sequence. So this is for ITV yeah. prime time. The thing that's supposed to replace Downton Abbey. Kind of. We tried not to say that too often because <laughs> how do you but replace kind of the was. biggest hit ever? <laughs> no, we're not going to replace Downton Abbey. <laughs> we're going to do something different. Um, so this is the coronation scene. So quite a big. Yeah, it's sort of a, it's a, quite a big, a, obviously a big moment in 
episode one, setting up a new show again. It was a long episode. This was, you know, you know the coronation's coming. That's not necessarily dramatically interesting, but it's how it was cross-cut and what the story beat was. And I suppose the first thing is, okay, so what's, in terms of storytelling, what is the point of this sequence? We all know she, you know, had a coronation. That's not dramatic. Now, that you could have told another story about that coronation. It was a very chaotic affair, and there's a whole other story, but that's not the story that we were telling. We were telling the story of here she is at this crowning, literally crowning moment. You're, into, you're cutting it with her biggest mistake that she is going to be vilified for, which is what she's done to Lady Flora on the other side of the cut there, who's being humiliated and examined and um, having her reputation destroyed at Victoria's behest. And the trick for me was it was, it was written that way. So Daisy, had, Daisy Goodwin, who'd never written for TV before, she created this show and wrote it. So that was, which is brilliant. And so she was a new writer to TV. So again, you're working with someone trying to help them understand the form and help them make it visual, I guess, if that's what, you, what you're doing there. Um, and the trick for me in that sequence was a lot of the lady, there's a lot of business at the coronation that I knew would be quite splendid. And we could, we referenced lots of old, you might look at some of this. We referenced oil paintings and this was, you know, can we do this on an ITV budget? How far can we go? How big can we make it? How much can we achieve that? But you're, you're not making a $200 million blockbuster. It's never going to be, it's going to be, you know, you're going to go as far as you can. You try and do the things that you can do as well as you can. And if you can't achieve it, then you, you back off and you find another way of telling the story. The trick was on the other side, um, the sequence is really only as long as you can do the Lady Flora stuff. Like how much of that, you know, so I had to, we sort of added to that sequence a bit. We had uh, Paul Reese there in the corridor, you know, looking shadowy and having them arrive so, so that I could do more cuts back and forth and, and make the sequence as long as we felt it needed to be for that, where it came in the drama, you know, we're an hour and something into it at that point and you kind of want to have a big visual moment with that dialogue. Um, and so it was sort of determined by how many things, so in directing it, we had hardly, you know, obviously, with the coronation, you had a very tightly structured day, and it was a big deal for the production to get everybody into those costumes. It takes forever. You're, at, you know, you're in Beverly Minster. You've got a, you know, there's lots of green screen going on. There's lots of technical stuff, but you know, you've got a lot of stuff to shoot, and there's a kind of day laid aside for it. I had like two hours for the Lady Flora side of it at the end of the day, and you're just scrambling. You're just grabbing. You're trying to get as many bits as possible because I knew we're going to spend all these resources on a coronation. And then it's going to have to be a short sequence because there's no story to it, you know, and we're just, only, I'm not going to have all these lovely shots, I can't use them. So I've got to find enough moments, so let's have the robe coming off. Oh, that actually cuts really well with the robe going on with the Queen, you know, oh, oh brilliant, brilliant planning. You know, um, let's do, oh, we've got this top shot from the top of the cathedral, the, the top of Beverly Minster. I was there on the day, what's that hole in the roof? Can someone go up there and do a shot? I bet there's a great shot up there. Well, and, she, and then we cut and lift, lift anyway, I won't go there. Um, so, there's, so there's all sorts of interplay going across the cut and I needed to have a lot of material on the Lady Flora side so I could make the most of what we were about to do on the other side. So this is one of those challenges. It's just a lot of improvise, a lot of sort of, quick, can we get that shot? You know, I want to do this toppy shot over her in the, uh, Lady Flora in the bed to go with what we did with Victoria at the beginning when she wakes up, that sort of, to have that parallel mirroring or whatever. But that's, that takes a minute to rig that, to get the camera into that position. How much do I want that shot? I really want that shot. Okay, I'm going to spend the next 20 minutes doing that because I want it. And you have to make, you're constantly making those calls because on a TV drama, there's, you know, you, you, the day is over when the day is over. Like, it's done. There's no, you don't really get into overtime on stuff like that. You have a set amount of time. It was on a location. 
you get what you get and you, you move on. So uh, it was, it's a frantic scramble, but it's quite fun. Anyway. Do you want? No, I'm, I'm, I'm wrecking it, but really, with that little Lady Flora sequence with the, the, the two doctors, and you know, that was, it was quite a sort of scramble of, it wasn't particularly written as scenes. I was sort of thinking, oh, let's see, can we do a thing with a sheep going up, you know, and we're on her there, and then we're back on the guys, and then we're over them, and you just, you know, you're just sort of looking for, but it's wrecky. I mean, I've, I've obviously gone and thought through the day and done maybe a shot list of that, of kind of a wish list of things we might try and get. Um, but then on the day, it's always different, so you change it, <laughs> you know, but you just got to have a plan. Shall we have a look at the storyboard? So, Buckingham Palace obviously didn't look right back then. As, it doesn't look like it does now, so we had to completely build it as an artefact, uh, which is a big expense for this production. You know, the locations don't really exist in London, because London is more of a Victorian city at this point, and this was pre-Victorian. So then we created this as a model, and we put the marble arch in there, because that's all obviously been moved. And, and the only real element there is the carriage, um, and the carriages in the foreground. Um, this was trying to give the scope and scale of you know, Regency London, uh, which obviously doesn't really exist, so you have to completely build it in a computer, and that is really difficult to make it look anything other than like a painting. So we kind of kind of go with the painting thing, but you, what I learned from this is with visual effects shots, you really need to have real elements in play to go with it, and the more successful ones have that. Have a real. So here, I guess that's all fake. That's a green screen. She's walking out of Beverly Minster, which is just terraced houses. Um, uh, this almost entirely fictitious. So that's how it began, <laughs> as like, let's have this sort of parade ground, and then they modelled it and built it up. Uh, and this is lots of consultation going back and back and back. So the only element that we shot there is the tiny little bit in the middle. Everything else is CGI um, and shots like that, just the soldiers and, and Jenna. That, all of that is fake, apart from Jenna in the foreground and maybe one row of soldiers. So that was a painting of Buckingham Palace at the time that we used for reference with and there, we actually filmed St. James's Park, that's the real element, which makes the rest of it look a bit better, I think. Uh, I don't know what this is. Um, House of Lords, okay, Westminster Abbey, again, you know, millions of people were out in the streets on that day, so you have to somehow convey that. But, um, you know, it's a struggle on that budget and on a TV show like that. It, they, they had to spend quite a lot of money to do all of that. And you re so you, you really have to know your, you know, you really have to know why you're doing the shot, you know. I was going to say, going back to your question then with all of that back of house planning and everything I guess once you get onto the set onto the location you, you pretty much know what you've got to do you know what you're planning not with not with dramatic scenes which we'll come on to where it's act, acting and dialogue everything we've looked at so far has been kind of sequences um, uh, with anything with VFX you have to have it nailed down because you know you it's shoot the elements it's just massively expensive when would you bring a storyboard artist on board when you were still deciding the shots or when would you... Yeah, well, partly uh, it's a pre-production thing. You do it quite early. You start kind of breaking down the sequence and visualising what you think you might... What you do is you get someone to visualise it, like, what could we do? Let's try, let's get some boards up and, like, look at them. And then, yeah, Like, we wanted to do a whole Trafalgar Square thing, Trafalgar Square being built at the time, and Nelson's column half-finished. We then found out that actually our dates were a bit wrong because originally it was in the script. It's like that's cool, we could see, and they, yeah, it wasn't built for another five years. <laughs> All right, okay, well, we could do it, but there was no story point to see that. We struggled to find a reason to have one a character who we cared about ride past you know, Nelson's column, kind of being built. 
still, you know, five years from now. Um, and it just became massively expensive. We filmed it all in Yorkshire, so there's not, you know, there's very few spaces that you could even do like a few limited bits, like York, but it would have involved enormous amounts of green screen and large numbers of extras and thousands and thousands of pounds. And you just, I had to call it, I'd say, you know what, I know where you sold this show to ITV, that was one of the images you said you were going to do. I don't think we want, where's it going in the cut? You know, it's just going to be a shot and it's going to be a really expensive one. And, and they, the producers are sort of like, you know, yeah, I think by then they felt they had enough other stuff that was good. But it, that's one of the calls. But that was one of the things I read in the script that made me want to do it. And you end up going, I'm going to cut that. <laughs> um, there was a whole sequence in the script that it opened with her as an old woman in, in the Isle of Wight. And it's fabulous. I did more work on that in pre-production than I did anything else. Never shot it. You know, because you just go, that's not the story we're telling. Yeah, just uh, to touch on your point about how you cut things, I was just wondering if your career goes on, do you get more um, precise about your shot lists and how more accurate you get about when you go to set the year? Or does it take a long time? I think I have, a, I have more trust in knowing we're going to be all right if we didn't get something, and I have a better sense of, no, we need something. Like, if we, got it, if we haven't got it, like there was a sequence, that we we're not going to talk about it now, but there was a sequence of moving into Buckingham Palace, in the, which was meant to be ah, doors opening and everything. And both the DOP and I, at the end of the first of that day, where we were meant to have sort of kind of told that, just turned to the producer and went, "We haven't got that. <laughs> we're going to be." And so, literally months later, we were still shooting parts of that sequence. You know, picking it up. You just put it. You have to throw it onto the production and say, "Right, we need. To, we're going to have to find out how to expand that. It's not enough. It's not big enough." Um, so yeah, you get a bit better at that, but you still go into it. You want, to, you want options, you want to go to the edit, you want to be able to do things and change it again, and, because you don't, you don't absolutely know until you get there and watch it with a room full of people. <laughs> um, how do you work with actors on a drama series like this? Do you rehearse before or do you have um, If you can, you will try and rehearse, but generally what happens, and we come on to this, probably good, we'll do a clip in a moment that's more about this, the acting and blocking and staging and all that. Um, uh, the, what, what I really hope to do is to be able to find in some way a chance to rehearse with the actors for a few days or as long as it takes to go through the scripts and talk about every scene that they're in with them, round a table, possibly with the writer there, so that you can all get on the same page and all properly look at the scene and the dialogue and what you're being asked to do and understand what the scene is about so that we don't get the situation that, right, everybody, first thing in the morning, we all get on set, and the actor walks in and goes, ah, the hair's all in you know, nets or whatever, and they've got makeup running, you know. And they're, oh, I've just read this. And you're like, oh, you're just looking at the scene now, you, you've got a problem? You know, because we haven't got any time to change it right now, so we're going to have to film it. So you want to get to the point way ahead of time, yeah, well, even if it's just the night before. You just need to make sure. What I don't do is kind of rehearse the scenes, Maybe if you had a, a particular production with a very important, precise set that you could mark out in a rehearsal room and you could actually block scenes. But part of the fun, and most of these shows are location shows, so you go to a location and that will pose its own problems. And part of the fun of it is what happens when you put live actors into a live situation and you film it and figure it out in the room. And um, then on the day, hopefully everyone understands the scene, they'll come in, I will have a sense of the blocking that I want. I'll have a sense of how I want to shoot the scene. But if it's actors, we will then let them have the space and I will let them, let's run the scene a few times and 
see what falls into place, see what little surprises we get. Let's see what we can do that's going to bring it to life more, or that's you know. But you try and you lay traps. You know, you put certain props that you know an actor's going to go want to go and pick up near a window, so they'll look good if they go over there, and they'll be lit nicely. And, you know, they like that generally. Um, you know, you think that there's all sorts of ways of sort of laying the trap. You know, you want to get on the set before anyone else gets there and go, oh, I don't have this chair. I maybe talk to your DOP and go, oh, what's going to Yeah, okay. So, yeah, on you go. Let's have a go. And so you want them to own the blocking. You want the actors to feel comfortable, unless you want them to be uncomfortable for a reason. You can do that as well. But if you want them to be comfortable in the blocking, we should, should we do the yeah. piano scene? Because this is, this is a very, this was a very important, much discussed scene and it's with my two leads, it's with uh, Rufus and Jenna, comes really at the sort of at the climax of the episode and she's at her lowest ebb. Uh, why don't we play it and then I'll tell you sort of about how it came about and how we ended up shooting it the way we did. So, um, there's a big scene for the two actors and they know it. And so they, and they've been wondering, you know, wondering about it all the way through the process. We've been, this is cool, very deep into our shoot now. Uh, it was originally written for them to be on horseback outside on the parade ground in the wings, so to speak, before she has to, uh, the thing she does next is she rides out in front of her troops and the, the people are yelling at her and hate her. She's at her very lowest, you know, most hated moment and she knows it. She's like, she's had all this confidence. So they had that in their heads and they were sort of thinking, yeah, but you know, they're gonna be on horses. That's, that's a whole, it's difficult to do really intense acting on a, you know, there's a trick to that. Rufus has done a lot of it, obviously, but uh, you know, but, but the, the physicality and their proximity, they're gonna be what, side by side. And anyway, it was one of those things to go outside and find that location was almost impossible. So from a, slightly from a production point of view, and also because it didn't feel quite right that that's where it needed to be. Um, we, so I said, okay, let's, let's, let's bring it into the set somehow. Let's find somewhere that's our big Buckingham Palace set in the leaky aircraft hangar outside Leeds. Um, and they were like, okay, okay, so it's not horseback. Okay, so how will I get, you know, we want to have this intimacy. I said, yeah, we need to have this intimacy. And I said, well, maybe we do it in the Queen's quarters, you know, in her private chambers. And Jenna was like, oh yeah, there's that nice window, which you saw her earlier in climbing up on looking out at the coronation crowd, that's all, that's all on the set. And she was sort of like, well, maybe we could do it there and it would be kind of in the corner. And they said, that's all we want to know is that we're gonna be close to each other and have, be able to kind of have a physical relationship somehow in the scene, have an intimacy. And then I can't quite remember why, but then on the, the morning of, I still had in the back of my mind, one of the ideas of the show is the royal characters, if you like, the high status characters are having these intimate moments in these big over the top rooms in these very ornate places and everybody else in the world is jammed together because you know, if you have money in that period, you've got space. And it, back there, all the, so the, this idea of crowds jammed into small spaces and then two people in a gigantic, ridiculously big room having a domestic conversation. So um, I sort of kept coming back to that and I wanted to make this a beautiful moment as well. And I knew their acting would be beautiful, and, but I also wanted it to be a statement about the show. And so I said to the art department, you know, have we still got that really expensive piano lying around? Because you re only rent that for a bit. And I'm like, oh yeah, we got it somewhere. So I said, can we drag it into the middle of that ballroom? That was the ballroom. So it's suddenly a ridiculous, it was our biggest set kind of thing. So can you just plonk it in the middle of there? Because I just want to have that sort of, and I'm going to try and see if we can play it there. I like, I just, so what I felt on the day, kind of. And again, no right or wrong decisions. It's just, that's just what I was, was going for. So um, Rufus and Jenna having, and this is a much discussed scene. They have talked it over with the writer a lot and they, you know, it was important to them. And, they, and if you're Rufus, 
you've been around the block a lot, you've been burned badly on some things where things have been cut and made you look, you know, you have an you know, you, you want to try and control that, and as he should, and he's very good at it, so you, you're, we're all open to that. So I knew it was a kind of hot topic. And so they walk in onto the set, and I say, oh, we're in here, and they're both like, what? Mm. Okay, and I'm like, okay, can we try it in here? I want to see how, don't mind where we go, I just want to use the space, um, and let's see where we go. Remember, I put a piano in the middle of the room. <laughs> it's like, there's a hint. Um, so they, so Jenna's, you know, they're both wonderful people and very good, and but very much care about what they're doing, care about their characters, exactly what you want from your lead actors. So they said, right, let's give it a go. And Jenna, you know, I said, okay, let's just do it. Let's go. And Jenna goes straight off to the corner of the room and sits on the floor by the window. And I wasn't totally surprised by that. Personally, I was like, maybe that's more interesting. The DP's behind me going. <laughs> you know, I'm like, let's go, give me a minute. Um, and Jenna's like, yeah, it feels good. And Rufus is, Rufus is, you know, he's going to be led by her a bit. You know, she's number one. So you go, go you know, you let her kind of lead it. And where she's comfortable, he'll, uh, he's like, I'll come to you. I'll come to you. You know, I'll be wherever you are. Um, suddenly, so they block it and they sit and they're both sat on the floor by the window. And we've done a bit of kind of Queen Victoria on the floor earlier on, when she, especially when she's being at her most girly and sort of, like trying to sell that idea of the little thing. And she's also, she's, you know, it's about this little figure in this big space and all that. She's feeling vulnerable, made sense. So we blocked it and they were like, yeah, you know, feels, feels quite nice. I said, yeah, you know, and maybe let them block it again. And I said, could we try it? Could we try and see what happens? Now that we found the mood, can we see what happens if I sit you at the piano? <laughs> and it's and so she sat at the piano because she's she'll do it you know she's great and she sat that way just a very simple just sat at the piano there you go and they just came in super simple staging super simple shooting don't need to do anything at this hopefully you don't need to do anything fancy at this point but i just wanted to have an elegance and a sort of picture quality um and put them in the best kind of staging for that moment, in terms of this kind of heightened world we're in. Um, and you know, they blocked it and they got it, and I think, but I let them, I took the time, it was the first scene of the day, and I knew it was the most important scene of the day. So I just said, let's give them the space, let them run around, use the space, find it, get happy that they were making the connection and that they had the scene, and then hopefully get them to you know, do what you ultimately planned all along. Um, and they did it, and, they, and it was great, so that's kind of how that came about. But that's sort of how I approach things. I try to. How long did that seem to take to shoot? You know, it's still not that long. I mean, they have to run it. So whatever the running time of the whole scene is, do that three or four times in rehearsal, get comfortable with it, then show the crew, bring everybody in, because you, you try and do that with no one else around, so you can, you know, you can thrash it out. But the clock is ticking. You, you know, you need to keep the focus. You also don't want it to go on too long because it, the energy goes and they. You know, you want to just keep the forward momentum. I'm always looking for forward momentum on the set. You don't want to get stuck. You know, that's the last thing. You, you want to just keep moving forwards. Even if it means moving forwards in slightly the wrong direction that you can then reverse things and come at it from that action. But you, you feel like things have kept going. There's been movement. You, people haven't frozen. 
because that's the worst when you lose that. So that's it. I don't know. And we spent probably spent a couple of hours shooting it because they go off to make up and all the lighting has to happen. And then we did. You can see the setups. There's like four or five. Pretty simple in a in a set that we had shot on a lot. So. Both those actors were quite um, experienced, I guess. Have you worked much with inexperienced actors? Does it? Uh, yeah. Everybody's different. Every, uh, no, no one makes it easy. <laughs> um, no, that's not really true. There's like, mostly they're, they're all, you know, British actors tend to be well trained. So they tend to have been to drama school. So you get a certain level, which is why there are a lot of good ones. Um, uh, American ones tend to be more instinctive, maybe haven't had that kind of formal training. So you're dealing with a, a, something that's more raw. Uh, a bit more methody you might find over there. That could be quite an, a place that people go to, and you just you go with that, you know. Um, inexperienced people sometimes they're just nervous, and when the camera's on them, they're the show. So even if they have one line, it's you. The whole thing is you right now. So you have to try and give them confidence and make them feel. That, the thing I like on set with actors is to make them feel like they can make mistakes, that they can try something. They can. They, I always any actor who says to me, "Can I have one more take? I've got something I want to try." I'll always give them that one more take, always. I don't care where we are in the day. I mean, unless the sparks have actually pulled the plug and there's no light, uh, I, will say, I will say you can absolutely do it because I want their version. And if an actor's like, ah, oh, can I, I'll do it, I'll do it this way, but can I just try one? I'll always let them, ha it's usually easier and better and more creative and better in, in the round for the show and for everybody. Um, if you let them, if you get a take or two of them doing it, if they have a very specific way they want to do that's different to how you're, what you're going for, I'm usually okay with like letting them try that a couple of times. They, you know, they, they may say, oh, you're not going to use it, but oh, thanks, you know, thanks for trying it. I say, no, I might use it. I don't know. You know, we'll find out. You might be right. Have you ever had kind of a standoff with an actor or actress and how have you fixed that, that they've not wanted to do something? I've had unhappy actors who for not necessarily, I don't think because of me, I think they've been unhappy for other reasons, um, being pretty unhappy on the set and being a bit hard work and not remembering their lines and making everything very heavy going. It's always about insecurity. It's always about vulnerability. It's always about something like that. And so you have to try and give them the space and encourage them and motivate them. Uh, I, I tend to do that in a positive way rather than you know yelling at them but some directors do it that way and they probably get results as well so um, and sometimes then maybe you need to do that but I haven't I haven't ever had anyone who's like no I've had people doing I've given them a piece of direction and they'll be like all right you know I can try that you know <laughs> all right <laughs> as long as you try it um, you know because I'm filming it and then I'll use it <laughs> so, um, but you don't have to say that. So you, you just have to go with that and you hope that you're not working with too many people like that. But all of them, the most famous people I work with, they're all vulnerable. They're all, I, I mean, I remember from being in front of the camera how exposing it is. I know what that feels like. And no one thinks they're any good. No, one th no one's like, ah, oh, that was the best bit of acting ever, you know, when they're doing it. You know, it's, they always think, oh, you know, someone will do an amazing take and then they'll sort of shrug at the end and walk off and you go, that's fantastic, and, uh, you know. Um, sorry. Hey, when you're saying earlier about you're someone trying to force a big name actor, mm -hmm. I'm just wondering if you learned that less than hard way. No, I think all the big name actors I've worked with, I've, I've gone into it going, yep, that's fine, that's good. Um, and that's generally always been, I haven't regretted any of that. Have you, have you ever been in a situation where you have 
miscast? Oh, well, that's, I mean, uh, you tell me, probably. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. Um, but you also have to then go back and remember, yes, how did you get to that choice? And I don't really, I, there's not much that I look back on and you go, yeah, right, in the, in the universe of all possible actors, it's all miscast, because we could, you know, if we could have got that guy, that would have been even better. But um, you have to remember how you got there, and that process is a long one. You take a lot of time over it and thinking about it, and you just resist the things that you just know are a total disastrous mistake. And they may turn out to be a disastrous mistake, but you don't go into it thinking, oh, I don't want to make the part. It's the only way I get to make the movie, and well, don't make the movie. Sorry, go on. Yes. Do you have the pressure from producers to cast more famous actors yeah. rather than uh, less-known actors? Yeah. Yeah. Although you sometimes find auditions, for example, that the less-known actors are better, yeah. but you still feel pressure to cast them more? Definitely. If you're making an independent movie, you're not going to make that movie unless you get... There's ten guys, there's five women. That's your choice, guys. If you want to make an independent movie that's an American... You know, there's very limited choices and they're all being chased. I've spent years of my life, not day to day, but years of my life being attached to independent movies with, you know, we've got one bit, you know, we've got this guy and we just got to find her and then we can make it and it just, you know. Do you fight that? Fight it? Yeah. Uh, I don't fight it. I just choose not to get involved with those kind of productions unless I'm really confident we're going to get the, you get be what you get better at is kind of going, yeah, it's a good script, but if the lead characters are not either Oscar-winning type roles that they're going to drop their fees and do because they want to win an Oscar, or if it's not an amazing role of a lifetime, then there's all that they're going to pay them a vast amount. You know, you, you just look at it, you go, it's going to be really hard casting that film. It's going to take years, and you're going to have to get lucky with who is out there in the talent pool if someone, a certain type of actor becomes really famous and they're a particular type, and then suddenly they're bankable. You, oh, quick, we can make that movie now because they're actually a good fit for that role. But, so you don't resist it because maybe on, on TV you might resist because the money's there anyway. But you, if you're doing it for one of the, if you're doing it for a big network or you're doing it for the BBC One or ITV, there is a certain need to have somebody there on the marquee to bring you in. You then have to make a brilliant show because the audience will go away otherwise. But and everyone knows that as well. But your life's going to be easier if you can find that high-profile star who's really good, who brings an audience. Perfect. That's what you, you know, that's great. So you don't resist that. Can we take one more yes. question and then we'll have our final clip. Quick. Um, Cass, do you have any advice for filmmakers who want to make their own independent film to promote themselves and to be... Uh, well, you need a great idea for a film okay. and a great script. So you need, you need, you need like a great idea, something that you can, ex that you're very clear about and you've got to think why would... Any, you know, why out of all the possible films you could make, people are making so many films, you know, why do you need to make another one? You know, nobody's asking you to. It's like, you know, don't make any more. Everyone stop making films. We've got enough. Um, so you have to have a very compelling reason to make a film. Uh, if, it's, if you're aiming at an independent film, because the journey for the independent film, it's a real passion project. If it has to be something you feel very passionately about. I wouldn't try and second guess what you think people are going to like. Make something that is your story, it's very personal to you, that you passionately believe in, and you have to make that stuff. You have to make that film on some level, because that will carry you a long, a long way along the very tricky, difficult road. And then also, um, you're going to stand a better chance if you write an amazing role, or two amazing roles, for 
actors so that a movie star could maybe look at it, who might be brilliant, or a very high-profile actor might look at it, like it's Quentin Tarantino did it with Roosevelt Dogs and got Harvey Keitel, and you know, you, you just, you're smart about, it's got to be an idea that you're passionate about, but then you think, have to approach it in a smart way and go, it needs to be, you know, modest enough in terms of the production that you could make it, someone could give, you know, put up a certain amount of money, you could make it, and that maybe there's a great role for someone who can, doesn't have to be the lead, Probably even better if it's not, if it's someone who could come in and give you a week of their time, and they're, but they're, it's Michael Caine, you know, and you might get your film made. So it's just thinking, I would think in those terms, and then just a lot of luck and a lot of persistence. Thank you very much. Um, our final clip is an exclusive. <laughs> just want to say that again. <laughs> um, it's from uh, AMC's new series, The Sun. And it's from... Is it this is from the season finale, so, yeah, well... It, yeah, I won't tell you what's really going on. It's just a lot of action. Be, you won't know what's happening, but it's people shooting at each other. So it's just a bit different from Queen Victoria and her ball gown, you know. So we wanted to show it as well because it is one of the US productions that... Yeah, it's a big, big on. US production. It's, uh, I did the last two episodes. But we'll play the clip and I'll, you can ask me questions about it. Uh, so I did that. So I did that as an episodic director, you know, being parachuted into a production, the season finale. That's just only a little part of that sequence. It goes on and on and on, and it also intercuts with a sequence that takes place in 1851, which is the Texas Rangers and the Comanches attacking each other. So that is real cowboys and Indian stuff. So you, I knew that I was going to have these really long, incredibly <laughs> uh, specific um, action sequences in my episode 10. And they sort of say, yeah, yeah, but we're going to write episode nine. So it's all like, you know, just people on the stage talking. So we'll have, we'll keep all the, of course, by the time I got there, episode nine, I also had a whole big story that was out in the wilderness. And so you have eight days to shoot one, an, an episode and you've got to somehow make a judgment call on how many hours <laughs> you're going to spend on that. You, and it's just an exercise in really technically and trying to anticipate all the questions. Who's going to get shot? How many times are they going to get shot? How many takes are you going to do? How many bullets are you going to fire? How many costumes do you need? How much blood is going to be a live squib? How much is post-production? How many stunts do you want to do? How many guys do you want falling off horses? How many vehicles do you need? What, you know, blah, blah, blah. On and on and on. It's just a massive long list. And you're filming it next week. So, you know, you need to get on top of that very quickly. So it's really an exercise in that. But it's also, so it takes me back to what I was doing with my video, in a completely different, with my video camera with my friends. We were like doing westerns in the back of Helensborough, you know, with like, you know, fireworks and, you know, incredibly dangerous. Um, uh, but and also the sheer fun of like the guy falling off the roof. So we're at the location and, and the thing about American production is, what do you want? Ooh. <laughs> what if we had guys on the roof? What if we shot one? Yeah, great. How many guys do you want to get off the roof? Just one. One's fine, you know. But you know, and so they did that. So to do that, it's a big stunt. It's thousands and thousands of dollars. It's a whole load of building up all these boxes and lab, and a guy jumps off the roof and gets shot, and you know, and you're there going, ah, thanks very much. Moving on. Um, so you, that's the sort of power trip that you're on when you're doing American stuff, because the scale just goes. They, they, they'll give you the resources. You just you'll only have this much time, <laughs> um, and you better know what you're doing, you better know what you need, because it moves very, very quickly. Do you have less creative input to the series if the showrunner's the one who oh, makes sure. the decisions? Yeah, there's, but there's a freedom in that. There's a freedom, like with Victoria and with Dr. Foster and with the next thing, I'm the guy setting it up, it's on me, I made, I'm there saying yes to all the casting. I didn't cast any of those people. I'm just showing up and getting to play with the train set, you know, getting to do all that. It's like you, get, you just get to have, that's fun. 
in a way. But you're not going to, I don't have ownership of that. I don't feel like that's me. <laughs> you know, it's just a fun thing to do and I enjoyed it as a, as a process. But if you're approaching something like that with all the guns and all that stuff and you're in the script, would you storyboard that for yeah. the shot, shoot for the edit for it? Uh, I, we did, well, with the, the thing that cuts with that, the Texas Rangers thing, I, I did storyboard it because it's, it was out in the kind of, I mean, we're in Texas and we got cowboys and it's, I'm like, this is great. Um, but you have to sort of pin it down because it's just like wilderness. So I had to sort of do plans and then I got a guy, we, we storyboarded it to work out, you know, we had to do very specific things like falling off horses and things like that. It's, it's got a lot of logistics and you have one day to shoot that whole sequence plus the burial at the end and the whole thing and the live scalping. And there's just a huge amount of planning. With that particular sequence, because it's actually a standoff on a location that's very defined, what I did was the aerial plans of like where all, all of those, a lot of those characters are characters in the show. So they're all, you know, principal artists. You've got your star, you've got um, Pierce Brosnan. Now you don't want him sitting there for two days in the dirt. So you just plan your coverage. He's delighted when you tell him that. You know, it's great because otherwise, you know, you don't want him just sitting under that tree for three days. Um, so you have to plan all your coverage. You're thinking about what the light's doing. We're under that big shaded tree there. You've got the light on the building. When are you going to do your wide shots? It takes time to get all those people into costume. So what time of the day do you want to do that? There's a huge dialogue scene that goes on before that. A big standoff. You do all, they're all arriving at dawn. So it's just a lot of, it, less storyboard, partly because it's a bit more static, but very detailed plans and very detailed shot lists that sort of describe everything. Just so that all the departments who are all, all over the place doing, the, they're already, they're shooting another show whilst you're doing, getting ready to prep your episode. You just, you have to communicate all of that. And then on the day, your first assistants, everybody need to know exactly what the plan is. Bang, let's go, how are we doing? Are we on, you know, are we getting it done? And it's frantic, you just shoot, bang, 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 go. But you can do it with a sequence like I think that. we have time for one more question. Oh, no. I think, no. yeah. Because you're talking about, like, in America, you had eight days to shoot that. So, comparison to Dr. Foster, how many days did that take? It's not much more, but you, you, you we, we shoot slightly more days per hour, but there's no overtime in this country. So, in America, you can, you can get into overtime, and they'll give you, out, you know, hours of it. It has a knock-on effect on your production, because if you need daylight hours, you, it's, that's getting technical now. But um, uh, they'll give you the resources. In America, they'll, it's a much bigger production, so they'll throw everything at it. So, it can, if you know what you're doing, and you're clear about it, and you communicate it, you can make the system work well for you. In this country, we probably wouldn't even attempt that sequence, <laughs> to be honest. It would be like, whoa, we can't do all of that. I mean, that was just a fraction of what happens in that. So you have to cut your cloth and work out the ways of doing it. And do you think it's a shame of like, the different styles? Like, you can't do that here? Yeah, I mean, it's nice to, I mean, things are getting a bit more ambitious as, as production here gets, has to get more international, has more American money in it, maybe. If, you, if you're trying to compete at that level, you're gonna need to scale. Obviously things like games, Game of Thrones and stuff like that is doing it, but that's an American show. That just happens to be shot in Northern Ireland or wherever. Um, but they're American shows done in the American style. The, it's, it's if for British production, you would approach it in the same way, but you would hit much sooner into that process, you'd hit the point where it's like, well, you can't have, can't have horses. You know, like what we saw with Victoria, can't have horses and we haven't got a courtyard. Do it by the piano, you know. <laughs> you know. Um, can it just be a little shouty <laughs> argument? <laughs> Could you maybe just tell us what you're working on next? Yeah, I'm working with Mike Bartlett on his next thing. He did Dr. Foster. So we're doing a thing called Press for the BBC. I'm going to do all six of them. Uh, uh, and it's about uh, two, it's centered around two newspapers. Now it's about the world of journalism and newspapers and what's happening in that world right now and how 
the world of millions of facts in the world get turned into stories in different ways by different newspapers for different reasons and about the people who work in those newspapers and what motivates them and the pressures on them and the difference between how idealistic they are and how some of them have gone down an idealistic path and some have gone down a you know, have started out that way, but have gone in different directions and, and everything in between. So, is it, is it more exciting knowing that you've got six episodes to tell the story rather than sort of being flown in? Oh yeah, I mean, listen, I like I like I like I like doing all of all of the above. But um, this is I'll be on this till the end of next year. Well, to the middle of next year, we don't start shooting till October. So I'm, I'm Mike. Mike is working on the scripts, and we're in that lovely creative time where we're figuring out what the show is, and knowing that it's going to go in directions that you don't expect it to. You think it's a newspaper show to begin with, and then it will, it's evolving. <laughs> How much input do you have with Mike Bartlett on what the script development is? He's very definitely the writer, but I'm sitting in a room with him on Monday this week and sat there with the producer, and we're just chatting about scripts and talking through. Again, it's it's questioning him and provoking him in a, in a creative way to say, what do, you, what do you think you're writing about here? No one else is going to come up with the idea that he's going to come up with. That's why you're backing him, and that's what's interesting. But it's helping him break it and form it and he suddenly we had a great breakthrough and he was like oh that's what this show is. that's what this show is really about and he's great and then you say right off you go and write it great <laughs> um so but it's but that feels a very creative process it's really enjoyable i'm afraid we are out of time now a little bit over time i, I fear however we have got an opportunity for a little bit of networking and there's more wine at the back so where's the wine do you <laughs> stick around can we can we thank tom that was amazing